My sister has always been an ardent lover of animals from early childhood, and when she was about four years old, she found an earthworm, tied a strand of yarn around it for a leash, and then took it on a leisurely walk up and down the sidewalk. Now, had it been raining, this tale would have a happier ending, but it was sunny and hot. And upon completing this walk, she was somewhat perplexed to discover that the poor creature was dead. Now, the punchline that goes with this story, as my family has told it for over six decades now, is that my sister's mode of thinking was simply that the worm should never have died because, as she thought, she had given it plenty of exercise. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. What sorts of animals are best suited to become our pets? The question actually isn't so much about the animals, it's more about our own human nature. In fact, to arrive at any kind of satisfactory answer, we have to hold a mirror right up to ourselves. Don't think for a moment that this conversation is going to be about them, those animals. It's going to be about us. Our false assumptions, our self-delusions about pets, our impulse to keep and control animals, our divergent approaches to them across time and place and culture, and our terribly inconsistent ways of valuing or devaluing them. You have these enormous differences in the popularity of these pets. So, for example, I've got a friend who's an anthropologist, but he was raised in a small village in Kenya. In his language, in his native language, they don't even have a word for pet. And they have dogs are allowed in the village, but they like sort of meme dogs. And the dogs are kept in the village because they scare away strangers and they also scare away wild animals. And I asked him one time, I said, I said, Niaga, would you ever, you know, let a dog in your home, in the huts that they live in? He said, he said, no. I said, would you, would you ever feed a dog at your table? Like, you know, like give dog food at the table? He said, like, no. I said, I said, Niaga, would you ever let a dog sleep in your bed? The look on his face was one of abject horror. And it was like, I had asked you, like, hey, just caught a, caught a rat, you know, and might have a heart trap, you know. Would you take it in your house and sleep with it tonight? That's how he felt about having a dog in your house. That's Hal Herzog speaking. His blog, Animals and Us, appears in Psychology Today. And there's a new edition of his book out titled, Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat. Why It's So Hard to Think Straight About Animals. His story about his friend thinking of dogs the way we would think of rats, I think that gets right into the business of rattling our cultural assumptions, our conventional thinking. You know, there was even a time in history when people wanted to exterminate cats, and not just because of the rhyme with rats. Maybe there's a historical pendulum swinging here, because as you no doubt know, in ancient Egypt, cats were not to be exactly exterminated. They were held in a position of importance and honor. Well, then they were mummified. Cats in ancient Egypt were just absolutely venerated, and they were thought to be close to God. On the other hand, if you were rich, it was good to be buried with cats, and they actually had cat breeding colonies, which would produce cats to be killed with the pharaoh or whatever it was. And they were breeding millions and millions of cats that they loved, but that also were bred primarily to be, you know, put in a pyramid. In the Middle Ages, cats went through a bad streak, and the Pope, in the 12th century, the Pope decided 
that cats were uh, associated with Satan worship and the devil. And so they waged war on cats, and the idea was to basically kill to kill every cat. And so they took great delight in terms of torturing cats and burning them up, beating them up. And if you had a cat, in some cases, that was a sign that you were a witch and that you could wind up being being burned at the stake. Cat's image was only rehabilitated around the time of, in Western world, Queen Victoria, who happened to like cats. And so the cat's image was sort of, was sort of rehabilitated. Rehabilitated, yes, but there's no chance of a complete makeover for felines. I mean, they'll never be carefree puppy dogs with glistening eyes and gleefully wagging tails. Cats seem more inclined to receive than to give. And for Hal Herzog and his family's cat named Tilly, that all seems to be quite okay. The thing that I like about Tilly is sort of the opposite of what most people like about their pets. She reminds me of the wild things. And she's, she's coal black, and she looks like a little black panther. My relationship with Tilly is very much like the relationship uh, humans have had with cats for most of the uh, 10,000 years or so that people have been living with cats. I feel like I should respect her autonomy and her own decision-making, and so I let her go outside, and she spends most of her day outside. She lets me know when she wants to go outside, and then, and then she comes in when she wants to, which is usually in the, sort of in the evening. She's made the decision to hang around our house. 60% of the cats in the United States now are seen as family members. And we sort of see family members. That, that 60% are genuine family members because they're never allowed outdoors. But Tilly is allowed outdoors, and Hal Herzog says that owning an outdoor cat for him, it's kind of a moral failing on his part. The reason why I feel like it's a moral failing of mine to uh, keep a cat outside is I know the damage that cats can do to other other wildlife. And there's a, abundant damage that, although the numbers vary in uh, North America, our pet cats are responsible for, I think it's a, somewhere between 5 billion, and I think about 13 billion uh, birds and small mammals and little reptiles each year. Uh, in Australia and New Zealand, cats are wiping out, you know, endemic endangered species. So, you know, our love of cats, is uh, a major environmental problem. And I asked a philosopher, Jessica Pierce, recently, I said, uh, you know, Jessica, you know, I'm really torn over what should I do with my cat. And she also has cats, I think. I remember her exact words. She said, there is no ethically clean way to own a cat. (laughs) Cats are, by their very nature, stone-cold killers, to varying degrees, depending on the breed of cat and individual differences. But Tilly, unfortunately, falls into the uh, Charles Manson category <laughs> of catness. What about Tilly looking at you and wondering if what category of humanness you fall into? I mean, why does Tilly like you? That's an interesting question. I suspect the reason that Tilly likes me is because I feed her. But also what I do is I, is I pet her. The cats that survive, this is probably true of dogs as well, that the reason why we evolved these special relationships with dogs and cats is through a process that's been called self-domestication. So that is, cats started hanging out with humans about the same time as humans invented agriculture and the storage of grains. Well, stored grains attract mice, 
And the original cats was the uh, group of animals called the, the wild African wildcat. Um, they began hanging out with humans because they, they could get mice. And the ones that were more tolerant of humans, you know, were fundamentally a, a bit tamer, got more mice and survived and, uh, and spread their genes more. So cats, to some degree, are tamed themselves. And that seems to be the case with dogs as well. So they kind of slip into our world, and it wasn't us going Ooh, out. And nicely put. Nicely put. I like that. They slip into our world. Yeah. And it's all self-serving, and they're opportunistic, and they're using you. Tilly, too. <laughs> Yes, they're using us. In fact, what John Archer, a, a British uh, researcher, has argued is that not only are they using us, um, but their mothers were the ones that were really using us because he says that pets are essentially parasites. They're what, what are called nest parasites. And there are some birds that are nest parasites. And what they'll do is the female will lay her egg in the uh, the nest of another species and then fly off. And that's and a cowbird. have anything to... Yeah, cowbirds will do that, right. And they'll fly off. And it may be a sparrow or a wood thrush or something like that that will take care, care of and feed this cowbird's, you know, offspring. And that's pretty much what we've done. Tilly's mom sort of let, you know, let her go near my house. She wound up, Mary and I took her in a doctor and we've been feeding her and paying her bet bills for the last 12 years. Now, unfortunately for Tilly's mom, it wasn't a good genetic decision because we had her spayed and neuters. So she's not going to have any offspring. So yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the end of the line. Because he's a psychologist, it stands to reason that Hal Herzog would recognize power play when he sees it. And if we're willing to see that kind of power play too, we can very quickly ask about any human-animal relationship, even those involving cats. Who is the domesticator and who is the domesticated? It seems like Tilly has finagled a pretty good deal for herself, a cushy life. But what about you if you happen to own a pet? Who really owns whom at your house? Consider with me this story from Maddie Vasquez about her two pets, a cat and a dog. And it's kind of interesting, by the way, to think that Maddie is herself a veterinary nurse. My cat has decided that he is the boss of the house, um, specifically when it comes to my dog's bedtime. I think I unintentionally trained him to do this because I always would give him a treat after my dog went to bed um, so that the dog doesn't take it. <laughs> but he has taken it upon himself to now put the dog to bed every night. So I'll be snuggling on the couch with the dog. The cat runs up, kind of like twitches its tail in front of my dog and then like sprints away. And he does this a couple of times, knowing that my dog is a collie and has that instinct to chase. As soon as she's chasing him, he runs to her room um, and he yells so that I'll come in and interrupt. When I come in and interrupt and yell at the dog, the dog just runs right into the kennel. <laughs> so somehow my cat figured out that if he gets the dog close enough to the kennel and then makes a big enough fuss that I'll come separate them and the dog will run into the kennel and he gets his treat. So the first few times he did it, I didn't think anything of it, but it's a consistent thing now. So yes, my cat is in charge of the house. And yes, my cat puts my dog to bed. It's unseemly, don't you think, to give rule of the roost to a mere pet? Sometimes I wonder if this can happen only when we believe a story that we tell ourselves. We're just showing affection. We're not really being used. If you're an animal person, as they say, it could be you were born that way. But what makes somebody a dog person or a cat person? 
I think it's very idiosyncratic from person to person. There seems to be a genetic component to those differences. Uh, you know, one of my kids is an absolute gaga over her dog, and uh, the other kids not so much. So you just said somebody can be gaga over a dog, and if I understood you right, this is a genetic predisposition. Somebody is kind of pre-programmed to be inclined, at least, to like dogs? Yes, and let's let's be very careful of how we say that. I think inclined is the best word, not pre-programmed. Pre-programmed you know, implies a, a hardwired instinct. And what we see is that there is, I, I think the evidence is going to show, as it is with many aspects of, of human behavior, including personalities, including our political views, is that it is influence, is our inclinations are influenced by genes. But it's not just genes alone. I would guess our cultural background has a hand in this too. Almost everything can count as a pet. And if you look at pets from a cultural perspective, what you see, for example, is things ranging all the way from a category of pets called mushi in Japan, which are pet insects, to in Samoa, where at one point they had these large eels that they would keep as pets. And there's a, a long tradition in Japan, parts of Japan is keeping bear cubs as pets. And so nowadays, when we think of pets, we almost always think of dogs and cats, uh, and maybe then hamsters and goldfish and creatures like that. But the, the variation in the creatures that we call pets is quite stunning. And by the way, I, I'm, I'm a pretty good example of that. When I was a kid, I fell for uh, creepy crawlies, particularly snakes. I had a, a bedroom full of exotic snakes and exotic lizards and things like that. So I get the attraction <laughs> to non-traditional pets. I absolutely get it. Hal Herzog, author of Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat, Why It's So Hard to Think Straight About Animals. Uh, we'll come back to Herzog in a few moments, though, here on Constant Wonder. If you think Fido is man's best friend, just wait till you meet a naturalist in this episode who claims that rats are our brothers. I'm not sure I'm going to buy that. Is there something, if we can't say pre-programmed or we're not hardwired to like this, that, or the other animal, there is something going on with our affection for infant humans and the proportions of the eyes to, to the, the, the Bambi thing, you know? Yeah, and uh, that's true. To the degree that we're pre-programmed to fall for animals, it would be because of the Bambi thing. And the traditional explanation, which I, which I sort of buy, is that, the reason why cute animals turn us on or turn many people on is because they remind us of human infants. These are called baby releasers. The idea was first put forth by the uh, Austrian ethologist Conrad Lorenz. So he made the argument that animals have what, what he called the kinder schema, which is basically an instinctive response to uh things that remind us of human kids. But people have it to different degrees. And let's say, for example, um, that puppy, which is so adorable and so cute in Kansas, you know, in the United States, is, uh, is a meal you can wind up on the dinner plate in Korea and is perceived oftentimes as disgusting in places like Saudi Arabia or India. So there is such a thing as a parental instinct, but culture weighs heavily on those, those instincts. 
there's no disputing it. We do play favorites, but we play favorites differently from animal to animal and from culture to culture. Many of us think of certain animals as more deserving of attention because they seem to be more like us in some way or another. A cute panda seems more human than a grasshopper or a snail or even a mammal like a mouse. It's not just looks, though. We relate more to animals that act a little like us. I want you to meet Simon Barnes. Barnes has thought a lot about the effect animals have on humans. Well, on human animals, I should say, and vice versa. Barnes is author of The History of the World in 100 Animals. Here he is talking about why cranes have been so revered by humankind. Cranes have always been great haunters of the imagination. They call them uh, the birds of heaven, they're called in Chinese. 15 species of them worldwide, and all of them are tall, long-necked, and graceful, and they have a tendency to dance. When I say dance, I'm not being fanciful and poetic. This is the little truth. As part of their expressions of group togetherness and a particular pair bonding, they will dance, raise their wings, and step, and it's one of the most uh, lovely sights. And as a result... People have always felt a special thing for them. And in North America, the whooping crane was in danger of serious danger of going extinct. There were down less than a couple of dozen of them left. But again, people wanted them to survive. It's often the case with uh, large, charismatic birds and mammals. People say, well, you know, we we must do something for them. Uh, But cranes, I guess they don't live in Antarctica and they don't live in South America? Exactly, but every other other continent you'll find them. Again, high on my wish list is these cranes in the snow of Hokkaido, subject of many beautiful uh, Japanese paintings and marvellous Japanese poems as well, for that matter. Cranes went extinct in uh, England about 500 years ago, largely because they took part in uh, too many uh, medieval banquets. But uh, quite extraordinarily, in uh, the year 1970, on a place uh, about uh, 20 miles from where I'm sitting right now, a gamekeeper reported to uh, his employer, he said, I've just been down on the mirror and I've just seen the biggest bloody herons I've ever seen in my life. So the guy went down and they were cranes. There were cranes dropped down. And not only was that miraculous enough in itself, they liked what they saw. They hung about, they stayed, they started to breed. And uh, they said, this is nice here, we don't need to migrate. Cranes, many species of cranes are huge migrants. These ones just decided, no, we'll hang about here. And so very slowly, very slowly, this population has slowly began to build itself up again. We're right in the place called the Norfolk Broads, which is a wild, wet, uh, watery uh, landscape. I live on the edge of it myself, and indeed I've had cranes uh, flying over on just one occasion. But every, every time I see one, I say, look, we've got plenty of room for you. You'd be most welcome here. But cranes have more than their fair share of joy, I think that's fair to say. If you happen to have an inner poet... You might be tempted to see a reflection of yourself in a creature like a bird, maybe even a crane. I kind of think the comparison feels ennobling. That's my inner poet speaking. But we are not birds, and heaven only knows if cranes think of themselves as deft dancers. They are light on their feet. But do they really dance? 
Maybe we just like to think they do. And if we like the notion, and if we relate to them because of it, and if this predisposes us to them favorably, and if that favor leads to efforts at bird conservation, well, I say all the better. When it comes to other species, sometimes it's not sameness, but a vast difference that actually leads us to value them. Take something so foreign to us, so exotic, so rare, that the animal seems to have a kind of special aura, and we sense a need to safeguard and protect it. Few people have seen whales, though, many more than used to. But at the same time, in the 60s and the early 70s, people started to oppose the whaling industry because they liked whales. They didn't know whales, they hadn't experienced a whale. People just thought whales are a great idea and the world would be poorer without them. So eventually the world moratorium on uh, whaling took place and it's a rare example of humans saying, you know, whales are very useful and we make money from them, but let's not catch them, let's stop exploiting them because we like them. I believe Norway and Japan and Iceland continue to uh, sit this one out to the frustration of many. But the rest of the world has just said, you know, we, have, we don't know whales well, but we know that enough to think they're wonderful and we want to keep them. I know they're mammals, but whales don't seem as human to us as a koala or a panda, which we also single out for special consideration, by the way. Barnacles don't grow on us. They do on whales. We don't blow spouts. We don't trap krill in our baleen for food. But for all the differences, 40 or 50 years ago, we humans started sensing a special need to protect whales. Meanwhile, our ethics about the treatment of animals can seem contradictory when we use other species for experimentation in labs. Hal Herzog explains how he had to confront this when he was in grad school. The ethical quandary for him seemed very much linked to the issue of sameness and difference. Probably many listeners are familiar with the famous experiments by psychologist Stanley Milgram on the psychology of obedience. And he put people into a situation where they thought they were going to be shocking other people. In reality, they were not. And he had them uh, push buttons to shock them at various levels. And a surprising number of people would... Uh, go ahead and shock people. They weren't in the same room, but they could hear them screaming. Would shock people all the way to a point where it said danger, possibly lethal shocks. Now, fake screams, right? These were fake screams. Exactly right. So nobody was actually injured. Well, I was in the same situation, except that it was a real life situation. And I was working in the lab of a chemical ecologist. I was a first year graduate student. And uh, one of the things that we did in the lab is we, is we studied how snakes innately could find their prey, how baby snakes could knew exactly when they were born, what to eat and what not to eat. And they do so by using their tongue to pick up chemicals in the prey items. And then uh, and that's how they would know that, you know, I'm a worm-eating snake, I should eat worms, or I'm a mouse-eating you know, mouse snake, I should, I should attack a mouse and not a worm. Um, this uh, other researcher uh, from Utah sent to our lab a box containing basically a menagerie of animals. And because I was the new guy in the lab, I was supposed to convert these animals into stimuli, chemical stimuli. And that involved a pretty noxious thing is what, what you would do is you would take these animals we usually used worms for this because garter snakes, which was our main animal, you know, they, they eat worms and small fish and things like that. It's, you know, so the trick is you take a you take a worm and you would uh, get a beaker of water 
put a Bunsen burner underneath it. You'd heat the water up to something like 180 degrees, 190 degrees, and you would drop the worm into it. And then the worm would just sort of instantly die. And, uh, you know, you'd leave it in there for a minute and then we would do stuff you know, to the water to, to sort of get these chemicals out. Well, what, and, and we, and I was told we had to use live animals to do that because killing them would change the chemistry. So I wound up having to, having to do this menagerie. And there was, uh, I remember what the animals that we had, a, we had a cricket, we had a scorpion, we had a uh, a little lizard. We had a, a small a small snake, and we had a mouse. So I had uh, you know some crickets, the scorpion, and stuff like that. I was supposed to convert into chemical solution by dropping into near boiling water. And so I decided, well, I would follow the phylogenetic scale and start out with the simplest, smallest things with the crickets. And you know, I dropped it. I guess it seemed more like the worms to me. You know, I, I knew that they would instantly they would instantly expire. Why, why did you start small? Yeah, so I did. I started small, and I decided to just work my way up. And so I did the crickets. I didn't have a problem. You know, the next thing was the scorpions, and there were two scorpions. And I had come to like the scorpions because <laughs> they had been in the lab a couple of days, and I was just fascinated by them. You didn't and, give them names, did you? No, I did not give them names. Uh but I dropped the scorpions in there, and they they thrashed about a bit, sort of like a lobster would do when you uh, you know if you, you put it in boiling water. And I, at that point, I began to think of like, man, something's 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 not right here. And then I did the the lizard, and then I did the baby snake. And each time it got harder. You know, this animal was a little bigger. It took a little longer for it to die. And then there was the mouse. And the mouse was just as cute as can be. And, you know, I, I looked at the mouse. I picked him up. And I just couldn't do it. I put him back. And I, and I thought, you know, this is the end of my graduate career. But I'm not going to drop a mouse into boiling water, a live mouse into boiling water. And I went over and I... I talked to the boss and I just said, like, you know, I just, I can't do this. Something like into my graduate school career. And uh, he was great. He said, no, that, that's all right. Don't worry about it. And, uh, and he actually wound up do, doing the mouse. But I, I thought about that. I've thought about that for years. And I knew that at some point I was going to, I was going to have to write about it. And so I wound up writing a, a piece for a, uh, the American scholar, a, a journal. And, um, it was that event that really got me thinking about, well, why, you know, why did I, exactly the questions you're asking, you know, why did I start with the cricket? That wasn't very hard. You know, what about that, that middle region? You know, they're, they're more morally problematic than a cricket, but not as morally problematic as a mouse. And I just, I just thought about for, that for years before I finally decided to put something on paper. And it was really the genesis of my book in some ways. You've got remorse about that. Still? Um... Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, not only do I have remorse about it, now I would not have, now I wouldn't, I would have not participated in that research at all. I'm sure. I, I just, I just would have said, no, this is wrong. It's so telling in your voice and your slow digesting of my question that that's what qualms are all about. Qualms are the kinds of things that we can't answer very quickly, and you took a little bit of time to answer me. Yeah. Yeah, now that I think about it, it's like, you know, you put it to me in a very good way because now that I think about it, so you're like, no, I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> I would have just said no right from the get-go. You know, think about it. This was before 
Peter Singer wrote Animal Liberation. This was back in the early 70s. And I was working in an animal lab. I was working in a lab where people were, uh, other people were working on cat brains, where I was working labs where people were, uh, you know, injecting rats with drugs, where animals were used in ways. This was before the Animal, the animal Welfare Act. This experiments were done without having to be approved by anyone. It's a whole different world now. And my ethical sensibilities have certainly changed. Our cultural aversion to rats, our disgust for them as dirty vermin, quite naturally has shaped and colored our ethical stance toward using them for purposes of experimentation. Maybe an Animal Welfare Act can temper excesses in whatever it is that we do. Obviously, this is a perennial question for humans who want to advance the cause of medical research, which often seems to warrant using living creatures. If we insist on seeing them only as disease vectors and filthy rodents, I'm talking about rats, we might forget what a debt we owe to them. It's hard to hold these two ideas at the same time, I think, that rats are awful and that rats are wonderful. I asked Simon Barnes about that. Rats, you say, aren't all that bad. No, I mean, they're very inconvenient because they're commensal with us. They're very intelligent, resourceful generalists. They can feed on all kinds of stuff and they can make up all kinds of different ways of getting hold of it. And that makes them hugely enterprising and, if you like, admirable animals. We think of them as particularly dirty animals. Uh, this is kind of an, uh, an injustice. Any mammal that was living on, on close terms and sharing our spaces would have the same problems, of potential contamination of food, the problems of feces and urine, and uh, uh, all, all that, the stuff that comes together with that. They'd be just the same if it was dogs or mice or say, so, well, yeah, but you can get a vile's disease from rats. Yeah, well, it, you also get it from cats and pigs and dogs. It's associated with the butchers and vets. Rats are difficult and inconvenient things to live with, but it's not because they're especially malignant. It's actually because they're particularly adaptable. You also point out, though, that we're the beneficiaries of their existence in the, in the medical arena. Exactly that. Absolutely right. If I was to call you, you know, a dirty rat uh, in the best George Raft voice, uh, you would have a right to be bitterly insulted. But in fact, uh, we all share about 90% of our genes with rats, and most of our uh, disease-linked genes we share with rats. And that's because they are small and uh, have so much in common with us, uh, makes them ideal laboratory animals. And so we use them again and again for testing remedies and for doing research into things like obesity, cancer, cardiovascular diseases, multiple sclerosis, and neurological disorders like Parkinson's. There probably isn't a single one of us alive on Earth in the developed world who hasn't got some good cause to say, thank you, rats. I owe you, brothers. It's quite a stretch for many of us to say, along with Simon Barnes, that rats are our brothers. Maybe we're more willing to share that sort of fraternity with creatures that seem more obviously like us. You know, the primates, for instance. If we owe a lot to lab animals, like flies or rats or monkeys, 
Well, I wanted to talk to Hal Herzog about how we humans calibrate our ethics when it comes to using different sorts of lab animals. Before he would even take me up on that question specifically, he prefaced everything in his answer with some thoughts about the experiences of hunters. What does hunting have to do with research on lab animals? Well, here's Herzog. This gets to be a really tough issue. Let me address it in a, let's keep the animals in a lab uh, out of it for right now. And um, let's talk about uh, sort of what, in some ways, the paradox of anthropomorphism, that is, our projecting our beliefs about, about animals, what we think is going on inside their heads. My friend and colleague, James Serpel at University of uh, Pennsylvania, I think really put this beautifully. Let's say we're early hunters, you know, 40,000 years ago. And um, the way that we feed our families, the way that we attract mates is by being a good hunter. And uh, what, what James argues is that a, a good hunter, to be a good deer hunter, it would really help to be able to think like an animal, to think like a deer, to sort of know what, know what, how close you could get, to know where the deer might be hiding. And I know people like that. I know people that are just incredibly good. They just have a sense of what's going on inside animals and they can use that. So let's say being anthropomorphic, projecting ourselves into animals actually makes us a better hunter. So we wind up you know, passing the genes for that, for that on down. But the other thing that that does is that if we're starting to project ourselves onto animals, we start thinking of them as people. And so what happens then is, is you have this I think fundamental guilt. So, you know, to be a good hunter, in some ways, the, the more you like animals, the more you care for them, the more you know about them, the better a hunter you're going to be. At the same time, you're going to be more likely to be burdened with guilt associated with killing them. So to me, this is one of the great paradoxes of, of our relationships with creatures. On the, on the one hand, we recognize that, that in some ways they're like us, but the more we think of them as like us, the less right we have to kill them. And by the way, this brings us to that science questions. It's the, sort of the same thing. And in, in some ways, we use animals in biomedical research primarily because we can do experiments on them that we can't, we can't do on, on humans. And therefore, the more like a human an animal is, the better it's going to be as a model in general for human disorders. And so there again, we have that paradox. You know, the more scientifically valid it might be to do experiments on primates, um, the less ethical we think of it is. And this is really playing out with COVID, by the way, in ways that most people don't like to think about. Because it turns out that mice do not make very good models for, for COVID. And the animal that does are, are, are monkeys. And so what we're actually seeing now in some ways is more research done on primates because of the search for you know, new vaccines and new treatments for COVID. You know, to me, this is, this is troubling because we do have a pandemic which is going to kill millions of people. And so how many monkeys are we willing to sacrifice to save millions and millions and millions of humans' lives? And I have friends, by the way, that, said, that will say not a single monkey, none. And other people say, like, no, there's the millions of humans' lives that might be saved are worth the lives of both monkeys and, you know, and mice, but even monkeys. I think much of our hand-wringing really does stem in large measure from our varying notions about varying degrees of kinship. 
none of my human cousins have gills, but my cousins the fish do. We might find kinship in unexpected places, like with mosquitoes. I explored this notion of valuing the very non-human animals in my conversation with Simon Barnes. You'll remember he's author of The History of the World in 100 Animals. I'm wondering if we humans tend to categorize in ways where we've got near kin and next of kin and distant kin. Yes, I think there is very much a hierarchy of concern or perhaps a hierarchy of responsibilities. We prioritize our own family first, our own friends. We feel their deaths more acutely than those of strangers. We feel more responsibility to humans and then to those animals that are associated with us, our companion animals. We feel more uh, responsibility to dolphins and elephants and whales than we do for mosquitoes. Uh, Mosquitoes play an important part in ecologies, but that doesn't make an intuitive gut-level sense to us. So yes, we certainly have a rough-and-ready hierarchy of care. Yeah, the mosquitoes, uh, a lot of people would just like to eradicate them altogether, but they fit in somewhere. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, certainly. Uh, Mosquito larvae in particular are uh, an important prey item for uh, many different species. A lot of them fish because mosquitoes um, lay their eggs in water. That's why they're always associated with uh, uh, wet and muggy places. So you do without mosquitoes, often in the past by blanketing swamps with DDT, but only when you get rid of a lot of other species, but you'll get rid of the mosquito larva, and that's going to break down the food chain. I don't know what the answer to that is. We all know that mosquitoes carry dangerous pathogens, but wiping out all mosquitoes and wiping out all insects is going to lead to problems perhaps greater than the problem you're trying to solve. I guess one of the reasons we really need to have conversations about animals and ethics is because the distance from kissing cousins to killing cousins is sometimes shockingly narrow, or at least with mosquitoes it is. Would it help to talk about another sort of animal that many of us hate, spiders? Let me tell you about a scientist who took this kinship concept to a whole new level. It's a story from Hal Herzog about a guy consciously working to develop empathy for arachnids. The story is about a Harvard grad student who built an enormous mock-up of a spider web in the lab just to become more empathetic. The grad student had constructed this gizmo out of large rubber bands and bungees and things like that. He had basically made a spider web. And he was sitting there in the dark trying to figure out what it was like to be a spider. <laughs> I just thought that was great. And, and I, I've done that myself a little bit. When, uh, when my wife would go to Florida, at one point we stayed at a place that had a heated swimming pool. And right next to the heated swimming pool was a uh, relatively small lake uh, filled with alligators. I really like alligators. And I would spend a fair amount of time on a raft with my head halfway in the water and half out with the with the water with the water just sort of slightly covering that little line between your nose and your eyes trying to figure out what it was like to be one of those alligators there's an audible smile verging on laughter right there in Herzog's voice probably because it takes playful imagination to role play or to channel some other creature with its existential perspective We'll just never be them. 
Meanwhile, the stories we tell about them reveal more about us than the truth about the animals themselves. Sometimes we tell ourselves that we're alike. Sometimes we think of ourselves as radically different. Sometimes we tell ourselves that the worlds we live in are separate. But that separation may be an illusion. In just a moment here on Constant Wonder, a group of people who live quite literally on an animal. Any guesses? I'll give you two clues. It's not a tortoise and not an elephant. I'm Marcus Smith. As I chatted with Simon Barnes, he's author of The History of the World in 100 Animals, I told him about a problem that has cropped up in my neck of the woods. There have been advisories that have gone out from the health agencies reminding some of these owners not to kiss their chickens. Uh, <laughs> apparently, there are, apparently that's a, a thing too. You know that some people are yeah. very affectionate, and uh, it, it just calls yeah, to mind chickens too. I have no doubt. <laughs> it calls to mind for me that uh, the human to non-human relationships that are ubiquitous because we share this planet, uh, these relationships are um, sometimes presented to us in oversimplified kinds of ways. Absolutely right. Uh, we like to think that humanity is something separate from everything else. We talk about the wild world or the natural world as if it was a quite different world from everything else. So it's good to spend time in the natural world. What other world is there? There is only one, uh, and it's the one that we all have to share. And uh, whether we like it or not, we have no option but to share it with many, many other living things. Among them are about 10 million species of animals, fellow animals, that is to say. If I live thousands of miles from the Great Barrier Reef, that's a physical distance. Mm -hmm. It may be that a rat is living in my backyard. That's physical distance. But then there's mm. the, the the fact that the rat is a, a closer in terms of uh, you know evolutionary distance uh, than say coral or the algae on a reef. Yes. Oh, absolutely. But uh, we have some good human reasons for being concerned about coral. All the same. The first is if you've ever just seen a, a Jacques Cousteau documentary, but far more importantly, more vividly, uh, is a first-hand experience. I remember the first time I uh, stuck my head uh, in the water by a coral reef. I was down there for about a second, maybe a second and a half, before I just came up spluttering and gasping because I couldn't control my breathing because of this extraordinary one. People talk about biodiversity and the biodiversity of the rainforest. The biodiversity of the rainforest is astounding and it's wonderful to be in, but you have to take a lot of it on trust because it's all 150 feet up in the air and the canopy. If you go into a coral reef, this is biodiversity as you could understand it again with your gut. Uh, and uh, that vision of beauty just leads you to understand that so many different kinds of living things. How can this be? This must be the way the reef works. This must be the way everything works. So, so it's very important to, for us as that kind of lesson. And then also there's a, an important point that reefs protect shores. And in many cases, islands like the Maldives or in Kiribati, 
uh, people actually live on the coral. These are coral islands. And yeah, you can have hardly have a more intimate relationship with an animal than to make it your home. This is a great time for me to remind you of Herzog's clever book title, Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat. And Simon Barnes, with his writings, is fully corroborative, I would say, knowing as he does that the history of animals is inseparable from the history of the way we humans have approached them. And sometimes we approach them with an appetite. We get hungry. For a while there, we were so hungry for cod that Canada had to shut down its cod fisheries. The great problem goes back to uh, a paradox in our own minds. We are forever getting better and cleverer and more inventive and getting better and better technology. But our basic mindset is still ancestral. And so we live with the basic idea that nature is both hostile and completely bottomless. And so people exploited the codfish. They did indeed have a moratorium on fishing in Canada. Then they stopped, they stopped the fishing. And they said, right, OK, uh, two years on, it's all fine again. And alas, it wasn't. The fishing industry is a constant problem. It's very difficult and secretive, as is practically everything to do with the ocean, because it's underwater and you can't see it. Uh, fishermen say, uh, there's no problem. There's always lots of fish. That's because they always go where the fish are. They don't go to all the vast, many number of places where now there aren't any fish. In terms of our emotional attachment or our, our sense of even responsibility towards something like cod, do you suppose if we kept them in pens in our backyard so that they were close to us, if that were possible, that, that our attitudes might, might shift to, to actually see cod alive? How many people ever see cod alive? Well, exactly. How many people know that it's actually a very big fish instead of a small square thing, you know, covered in breadcrumbs? The same thing is true of whales. Few people keep whales in their backyard. Nor in their homes, I might add. We're a lot closer to dogs and cats, physically at least, though maybe not phylogenically. I'm talking about the kinship business again. If cannibalism can be charted on a sliding scale of kinship, then it's less cannibalistic to eat cod than to eat any mammal, including a whale. It all gets very complicated, you know. But the ongoing challenge is not just about honoring or preserving a species by keeping it off your dinner plate. Sometimes it's about finding the best way to live in their company or for them to live in ours when we're not eating each other. Which brings us back to pets and Hal Herzog. Let's take dogs. The more we consider our dogs members of our family, I argue the less right we have to keep them as pets. So, for example, you wouldn't cut the testicles off a member of your family, would you? No. I'm going to say that quickly, as quickly as <laughs> I, 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 feel, I feel bad like I paused for a moment there. You wouldn't imprison a member of your family so it was only able to go outside when you had a leash around its neck and you took it to obedience school so that it would sit every time you wanted it to sit or stay every time you wanted to stay or serve it the same dreary food meal after meal after meal. You're getting at the point that a pet, as, we, as most of us conceive of pet, we think of them as be, having more freedom than we're actually ever giving them. The sociologist Leslie Irvine, she basically says, you know, if you really think about it, a pet's basically your slave. I've compared the logic of pet ownership with the logic of eating meat. 
And I eat meat. If I were a better person, I wouldn't eat meat, but I'm not a better person, but I eat meat. And my only justification for eating meat, I know all the ethical problems against it, the environmental problems, the health problems. I know all that stuff and I agree with them. The only reason I eat meat is because it tastes good. Now, that's not a very good moral argument, but why do we keep pets? We keep pets because they make us feel good even though in some ways they're bringing harm to the pets. I, my wife and I, before pandemic, we spent a week on the island of Tobago and I got to watch a lot of street dogs in Tobago. And what I concluded is that if I were to come back in the next life as a dog, I would rather be a street dog living in Tobago uh, that didn't have his testicles cut off, that you know, got to, you know, got got fez occasionally, but got to have girlfriends, you know, got to hang around with his pals, got to call its own shots. I'd rather be that dog than a dog that lives in, let's say, my my neck of the woods in a small town in western North Carolina where there's no stray dogs anymore. Every dog is constantly under human under 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 my thumb, as the Rolling Stone says. <laughs> I want you to guess what I'm thinking now about the whole prospect, the whole human experience of pet ownership. I'll tell you, I feel like everything you've told me says that pet ownership is going to warp our ethics. Oh, the, I, it's just going to. Uh, yeah, yeah. Now it can, it can warp it in good ways and bad ways. And uh, and let's talk about the good ways that it can warp our ethics. Let's not use the word warp. Let's say change our ethical sensibilities. Uh, dogs have been called an ambassador species. What we've seen in uh, the last 30 years in the human pet relationship is a phenomenon that the pet products industry calls the humanization of pets. Where we, and we, We've been talking about this before, this idea that pets are really are members of the family, that we're really thinking them as humans. And we, If you look, for example, at the, um, you know, you can go to your, you know, any supermarket and look at the types of food people are buying for their, for their dogs and cats. You know, it's human quality food, you know, venison and salmon with, uh, you know, chopped carrots. And, and we have uh, video games for, you know, dogs and cats and, uh, you know, salons and all, and all that other stuff. Um, well, the more we, more we think of people, it does change the ethical way that we think about dogs and cats. But what has been argued, but it also ch changes the ethical way that we think about other animals as well. So dogs have been called what's called an ambassador species because as we've seen this change of the humanization of pets, we also see the growth in the animal rights movement where people are thinking of other animals besides dogs and pets as also having, having rights and deserve moral consideration. So I, I think there's a connection. I think you're making a good point. There's a connection between, you know, the elevated status, moral status we're giving our pets in some ways and the elevated status we're giving animals generally. But would we fool ourselves with this humanization of pets if that ambassador species, the canines, lead us to enslaving more and more <laughs> pets because we want them to be humans. That is the paradox. And, you know, the thing, I guess the thing that I have learned in, you know, in the 30 years that I've been studying human-animal interactions is that these paradoxes are everywhere. I would see them just in so many, so many areas of our relationships with animals. We have these moral quandaries, and oftentimes people don't like to think about them, but we are put in these really paradoxical situations. You know? So if we're stuck in the paradox and the qualm and all of that, you know, that's the territory we're stuck in, do you ever just sit down in the evening, watching the TV, being a companion to Tilly, 
and feeling like this is the life, this is okay, this is some joy. I, uh, yes, I feel that way a lot. And indeed, that's sort of my message. You know, I don't feel like I'm in the business of giving people advice. I'm not a philosopher. And, you know, people oftentimes ask me, well, you know, how should I, you know, should I eat meat? Should I not eat meat? You know, should I let my cat outside? And, and that's not my job to tell them what's right or what's wrong. But what I do tell them is that there's what we might call like the moral purity paradox. You know, I've got friends that are very dedicated animal rights activists who I have enormous respect for because they, they have a sense of moral clarity, but it doesn't make them happier. In fact, because they tend to see suffering in a lot of places, it makes their life in some ways more difficult. You know, I've had people tell me that they don't like driving their car because of the bugs that are killed on their windshield. I've had uh, one example was a, a guy I write about in my book who had a who had a cockatiel that he really loved, and then he read some animal rights stuff and he realized it was wrong to keep this cockatiel inside. And so what he did was he was he let it free. He set it free. Well, cockatiels, I think it's from Australia, but they, they don't belong in Raleigh, North Carolina, and the smoggy the smoggy you know, <laughs> you know grayness at that time of year in Raleigh, North Carolina. So he lets it, he lets this bird free, and he said, you know, it was really great. See him fly off. He said, you know, I think it might have been I might have been doing it for myself more than I was for him. And it's like, yeah, he was going for moral clarity, but it, it wasn't making him any happier. That was psychologist Hal Herzog. He has a new edition of his well-known book out titled Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat. Why it's so hard to think straight about animals. We have wound a crooked path through the animal kingdom today as we have explored our own inconsistencies of thought about how to relate well or ethically to our fellow creatures, be they wild or domesticated. I kind of like that Herzog does not come down with any prescriptions about what to do, but he does invite us to seek greater clarity, to try to do right, to do our level best at least, by the animals in our lives. I'm talking about our pets and our food and the pests we do battle with. I'm going to let Simon Barnes close the show. Barnes, once again, is author of The History of the World in 100 Animals. He described for me a species of crane in Zambia. It's called the Southern Crown Crane. Apparently, they have... A wonderful cry they sing, Awan, Awan, which is sometimes transliterated by uh, Zambians to mean all one, all one. Animals, non-human animals, all one. Any life scientist knows how that works. You just put them in a single kingdom. It's called Animalia. How the plants fit in and we relate to them is something to save for another occasion. I'm Marcus Smith. This episode of Constant Wonder was produced by Tenery Taylor, Addy Mangum, and Mamie Teeples. Sound designed by Trent Reimschussel, Parker Schmidt, and the BYU Broadcasting Sound Design Team. Thanks for listening. <laughs>